life in mission control. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Mission Control Center is responsible for the safety and well-being of its astronauts and space hardware. It takes a special kind of person to take on that responsibility. NASA's flight controllers and directors are there in MCC 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, including holidays, keeping our astronauts safe and helping them conduct on-orbit science and maintenance. When he retired from NASA in 2013, Paul Dye was the longest-serving flight director, tallying 39 missions during his tenure. His new book, Shuttle Houston, My Life in the Center Seat of Mission Control, chronicles his four decades in aviation and takes us behind the scenes of NASA's Mission Control Center in Houston, Texas. We'll talk with Paul about his career and what it takes to be a flight director. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Flight controllers in NASA's Mission Control Center are responsible for the safety of astronauts on the International Space Station. A Russian anti-satellite missile test last month caused thousands of pieces of debris in a cloud that threatened the astronauts on the station. The Russian Federation recklessly conducted a destructive satellite test of a direct ascent anti-satellite missile against one of its own satellites. The test has so far generated over 1,500 pieces of trackable orbitable debris and hundreds of thousands of pieces of smaller orbitable orbital debris that now threaten the interests of all nations. In addition, this test will significantly increase the risk to astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station, as well as to other human spaceflight activities. Flight controllers on the ground helped astronauts on board shelter in place inside their Dragon spacecraft. At your discretion, it's your call. Just to note that the Soyuz crew is not in suit and then heads up 15 minutes to the next debris field past TCA. Endurance copies, and is the uh, conjunction still yellow risk, or has it changed? It's an equivalent yellow uh, for the next debris pass, and then also we, we are um, estimating that the probability of a hit to Dragon would be lower than the rest of ISS. No debris hit the station or their docked vehicle. It's just one example of the role flight controllers and directors play in keeping these astronauts safe. Paul Dye was one of those flight directors for NASA who retired back in 2013. His new book, Shuttle Houston, gives us an inside look at life in mission control, and he joins us now to talk about the book and his career with NASA. Paul, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure to chat with you, Paul. Um, the book is Shuttle Houston, My Life in the Center Seat of Mission Control. Um, if you could briefly, how did you how did you get into that seat? <laughs> what was your journey to mission control? <laughs> you know, I expected, uh, I've, I've been interested in flying machines my whole life, and I expected I was going to just be uh, building airplanes most of my life. But but I was in the middle of my college career when I got the opportunity to uh, to do a co-op tour with NASA. And at the time, the airplane industry was kind of uh, having some rough spots. And so I went on down to Houston for six months as a co-op student. And they they looked at my resume and they put me in mission control. And I realized that uh, that, that that was a great place to be. And so uh, when I got out of college, they offered me a permanent position, and I said, uh, sure. We were, we're, I got in on the ground floor of the space shuttle program, the flight program of the space shuttle, and uh, and stayed with it for 34 years. So 
um, after being a flight controller for a dozen years, I was selected as flight director and, um, and ended up loving that seat so much that, that I just decided that that was where I wanted to stay. So, so I was the longest serving flight director in human spaceflight history. Mm -hmm. You said you knew that's where you wanted to be. What was the draw to working at NASA's mission control center? You know, I, I, I guess it probably has to go back to my love of the space program when I was a kid. Now, People later on said, oh, we always knew you were going to work for NASA. And I said, well, that was not my intent. But but I think the excitement of being part of the part of the youth, you know, I was I was um, uh, 11 years old when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon and I was just uh, infatuated with anything space. And so when I walked into mission control for the first time and realized that, holy smokes, I could actually be one of those people that was sending people into space. Um, that was amazing. And then when I realized that I was going to spend a lot of time in the shuttle simulators, learning how to fly the shuttle and doing all that kind of stuff, that really um, enraptured the pilot part of me. So um, uh, I, I think that's the whole package was just it was it was constant excitement. Um, we mm -hmm. used to say that that people don't really work at, at Johnson Space Center. They're just they're just getting to do what they're passionate about. And a paycheck happens to show up. <laughs> Paul, I mean, you are responsible for the safety and well-being of all those astronauts on board, plus the shuttle itself, all the components. There are thousands, tens of thousands, if not millions of switches and procedures, and it sounds like a Herculean task to understand all of that. I mean, how, did, how, how do you train for, for, <laughs> for a job like this? It sounds that absolutely incredible. It really is a good question. Um, you know, you start out as a flight controller in one particular discipline, but it turns out that your your discipline interfaces with a lot of disciplines. So, you know, you've got to, if you're, I, I was working with uh, with a space pointing system, which meant I had to, I had to learn everything about the electrical systems that fed me. I had to learn everything about the computer systems that we communicated with. And so you, you start learning all the other systems that are peripheral to you. And then um, if you're fortunate, you move to a different discipline in mission control, and then you learn another discipline and all the interfaces of, to that. And, and you just kind of, it's like eating an elephant. You know, you, you, you gotta, bite, you gotta eat it one, one bite at a time. And after a dozen years, one of the, one of the things I always told people is that when you go and spend eight hours in the control center doing a simulation, only a portion of that time is going to be dedicated to your plan in a sense, you know, working the failures in your discipline. And so the people who really want to become a flight director at the top are going to end up, you can't just spend the time looking at your problems. You need to, you need to watch everybody else's problems and how they solve them and how their systems work. And, and, and then that really prepares you well to be um, in the center seat. Um, mm -hmm. and in the end, you know, everybody, everybody becomes an expert at something in their life, no matter, no matter what they're doing. And, and when they get done, everything they do seems to be natural. And people look at it and go, how in the world did you learn all that stuff? And you go, I don't know. I just did. Mm -hmm. Paul, tell me a bit about the environment of the mission control center. You know, what is it like in there? We see portrayals of it in movies, you know, most famously Apollo 13. Uh, but you know, to us on the outside, it seems like you know, the, this room full of knowledgeable people who are calm and cool and collective. But what is the energy like in Mission Control Center during a, a normal operation? It, that, that's a good question. They, they, 
If you walked into the control center uh, on any given day during a sim or a flight, your first impression is that it's very quiet in there and that everything is just very calm and smooth. But that's because everybody's wearing a headset and everybody's talking to, to many people, but they're doing it on a headset, which means you're talking pretty quietly. And so while the room might seem very quiet, there's a lot going on. Um, it's kind of like watching a duck. You know, they may be very ser- serene on the surface, but they're, they're paddling like crazy underneath. And so um, you need to plug in. You need to put a headset on and plug in to figure out that there are there are, are, are hundreds of different conversations going on at any one time trying to solve things. And I would say that, that more than anything else, uh, engineers and flight controllers are challenged and, 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 and energized by working problems, um, by, by, by puzzles to a certain extent. And so the training team during a simulation is busy trying to give them failures that nobody has ever thought of before so that you have to take your knowledge of the systems and wrap that around what you're seeing and trying to figure out an explanation and then carry that forward into a solution so when you saw the movie apollo 13 i think that is overall the best representation of what it's like in the control center um Mm -hmm. there are there's a lot of of of, of there, there can be a lot of quiet tension when things are going really wrong. People don't freak out, if you will. Um, you're not going to be in the control center long if you do. Um, a lot of a lot of the more sparring type things do happen in the back rooms where people are trying to solve problems, and it can be a little noisier, and people are bouncing ideas off each other and and saying, "Well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, but <laughs> let's look at it anyways." Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's a very, very um, engaged and problem-solving environment. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about something that stood out to me in the book, Paul, and it was the discussion of the P-tubes, which are these pneumatic tubes <laughs> that you use to to um, get right. messages around. And it was it was I don't know if it, this was your intention, but it was hilarious to me the juxtaposition yeah. <laughs> between between you've got this vehicle that has left the bounds of Earth's gravity and and is in space and is this technical and engineering marvel, uh, and yet you're still zooming around documents in in these bank tubes. Like, what's it like? Did did you ever feel like you were behind the the eight ball when it came to technology that that you were doing? we we were in the early days in the early in the old control center. You remember, got to remember, we flew the old control center for about fifteen years, and then we flew in the new control center for about fifteen years, and we created the new control center because we had smart computer savvy people coming to work for us who said, "You mean I got to I got to work with a black and white monitor driven by a by a mainframe in the basement? Let me <laughs> give me a mini computer and let me think out let me let me think outside the box." And what was interesting was was the new control center kind of grew organically with all these little peripheral computers that people were adding to their consoles. And at some point, we reached a critical mass where we said, you know, we can replace everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's build a new place. And so it was ironic that, yes, we were dealing with with the old pneumatic tomb system that I think was made up by Sears Roebuck or somebody. (laughs) And and uh, and it worked fine and it was quick. so I'll tell you that when we in the transition, of course, when we, we said, OK, we're getting rid of the P-tubes in the new control center, everything will be transmitted via Internet um, and, and uh, or intranet. 
and uh, and of course for the for the inter interim period there where we were trying to make that work, everything was transmitted by sneaker net. In other words, somebody <laughs> just had to run from built from room to room to take the paper uh, because we didn't have a P tube system. So and there were times when we kind of wished for the old P tube system to be back until until we really nailed the technology. Mm-hmm. I, I just it was it was just a, a really fascinating image to think about <laughs> yeah you know yeah. Yeah, high tech low tech yeah and, and uh and 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 you're always looking for the simplest solution so i don't care if the simplest solution is is very primitive if it works and does the job and gets it done efficiently why not mm-hmm. if it's not broke don't fix it right uh. yeah that's kind of true <laughs> yep yep you're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. We've been speaking with Paul Dye. He is NASA's longest-serving flight director and author of the new book, Shuttle Houston, My Life in the Center Seat of Mission Control. We'll talk more about his storied career in aviation and in NASA after the break. But before we go, I want to tell you a bit about our show next week. We're going to be chatting with space reporters Emily Speck from Fox Weather and Emery Kelly from Florida Today. 2021 was a very busy year in rockets and spaceflight. We'll go over all the top stories with them. We'll also chat with our friends from the Walk About the Galaxy podcast, UCF physicist Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell about what they thought were the big stories in astronomy and what's to come. Which reminds me... There's a lot of great space news happening in 2022, and I want to know what you want to hear about. So help shape the sound of this show going into next year. Send me some story ideas or topics you'd like us to tackle here on the program. You can reach me in multiple ways. First, you can email me, are we there yet at WMFE.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm personally at SpaceBrendan or tweet the show at AWTYSpace. We want you to be a part of our exploration efforts in 2022, so go ahead and let me know what you want to talk about. Our conversation with Paul Dye continues. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Our conversation with Paul Dye, NASA's longest-serving flight director and author of the book, Shuttle Houston, My Life in the Center Seat of Mission Control, continues. You talked about kind of how inside the Mission Control Center folks are calm and cool and, and collective, and, and you know, there, there's not a lot of, you know, yelling or anything if there are any issues going on. But I want to know what happens when things go wrong, and, and I'm thinking about... Um, the recent uh, debris threat to the International Space Station um, that forced the astronauts to to kind of seek shelter in, in their spacecraft. What's it like in Mission Control Center when something like that happens? I'm not going to say something unexpected because you expect everything, sure. but when something sure. like that happens, does the does the mood switch? What what's it like in there? Uh, yeah, you know, you can go from a very, uh, relaxed pair uh, 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 relaxed paradigm, uh, let's say, and where, where people are just kind of routinely doing things, especially you've got to remember the space station is different than the space shuttle and that everything takes longer because it can in the space station world and the space shuttle, you've got limited time. You've got to come back in the vehicle that you're flying. Um, but, but when something comes up 
you know, we'll go back to Apollo 13. When the words came down, Houston, we have a problem. Everything freezes. And it's like, okay, folks, shift gears. Not, life has now gotten very serious very quickly. And because we train for that all the time, we can shift gears instantly. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes the flight director might tell people, okay, everybody quiet down. Uh, we got to work this. But, but, but by and large, everybody does that automatically. So for something like the debris case, it probably, uh, the, the flight director got a call from somebody saying, hey, we're hearing that this happened. And, and it probably took a half hour to 45 minutes to an hour before we were able to confirm uh, or they were able to confirm what was actually going on, um, which, you know, you can't do anything about it in that time. So um, it takes a little time to do it. But, but your first reaction is, are you serious? What, what happened? Tell me more. And so you, you start um, unwrapping the onion, so to speak, and trying to get down to what's really going on and what the real truth is. Um, oftentimes you'll hear something really uh, that, that could be catastrophic early on, and once you start really peeling the onion, you realize that it doesn't affect you at all. And, and then you can calm down a little bit. But, but we're really good at going from relaxed to deadly serious very fast. Mm-hmm. There have been calls now to kind of wrangle space debris and especially space traffic control. Um, after spending almost four decades in the Mission Control Center, did you kind of see how the traffic in space was becoming more and more of a problem as more things went up? I mean, you had a unique perspective where you got to see this kind of low Earth orbit economy evolve. What was it like? Right. So to be honest, um, first off, I'll, I'll borrow a a saying from that old, uh, scientist, you know, Carl Sagan, that, that, uh, you know, space is really, really big Mm -hmm. and, and debris is really, really small. And so, yes, it's a problem. But it's not it's not like you're sitting there weaving, dodging and bobbing all the time to try and avoid it. Um, it's 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 big, but it, it it's it's a problem. But it's not it's not a, the overriding concern in your life. Um, to be very honest, I don't think that I saw a significant change in the quantity of debris issues that we had throughout the 30 years of the shuttle program. Um, every once in a while, you'd have to work a problem with a debris conjunction, as we call it, um, but it wasn't like as the years went by, it got worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, because even though we knew that the amount of things in space was going up, the impact of that increase had not reached a point where it was increasing our impacts, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, even the case uh, a couple of weeks ago w- with that debris case, I'm sure that that they looked at it, they tracked it, they figure out where the various uh, cloud was going to be going. And uh, they sheltered in place because the rules said, "Okay, we we have this this percentage of chance of an impact. Therefore, we need to take this action. But they sheltered in place for 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 a couple of orbits and then they came out and they continued work. Um, I understand that they had to delay the spacewalk last week by a day because of a debris impact or debris um, conjunction. I don't know if that was related to the incident from a couple of weeks ago or if it was just another random piece of debris. People get sensitized. To, to certain things when, when they happen. Um, but it's, it, I don't think that it has reached the point where that's the primary concern you have when you go to work today. Mm-hmm. Paul, you spent almost four decades um, in, in the role. Who were some of your role models that, that you talked to, to help you prepare for, uh, for the position? Oh, 
you know, I was I was so incredibly fortunate to have joined NASA and Mission Control at the very start of the shuttle program when all of the 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 the, the heavy hitter players from Apollo were still around and not just around but teaching us how to do the job. And and of course, you know, Gene Kranz was there and, and Chris Kraft was there and and um, and then and many of the other folks, Glenn Lunny. Uh, was one of the early flight directors, and uh, Glenn was just like a father figure. Now he wasn't around all the time. In he was, I, he was, he was retired earlier. He went off to to uh, to industry, but um, his son was a flight controller with us when I was there. He was a few years younger than I, and so we would see Glenn show up at parties and and things, and and an awful lot gets learned just standing around drinking a beer and uh, and uh, talking about the old days with guys. Um, and then just all of the line flight controllers that, that I was assigned to work with, learning all of the things that they had done and how they solve problems and how they learn systems and things. Um, I can't pick out a single hero. There, there are just too many of them. Mm-hmm. I had the chance to chat with uh, Jerry Griffin recently. And yeah. when he was telling me stories about MCC, it was – what what stood out to me was that how – trusting you all had to be in each other. He, he was telling me about the different teams in Apollo and, and, and certain issues that he had to deal with, but you always trusted everyone to do their job and to do the right thing and, and to know what they were doing. How does that trust develop in, in, uh, in a team like that? Well, the first thing you do is you, you, when you walk into the control center, you realize very quickly what you realize is that that, that trust is absolutely Absolutely critical, absolutely important, and, 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 and has to be implicit. So you learn right from the start that you have to be open, honest, and truthful at all times. And then you start training together. And when you train together, uh, you learn. If you screw up, just say you screwed up. You'll, you'll do better next time. And people say, okay, great, you recognize it. You know, don't make a habit of it, but, but, but you're putting out an honest effort not to make those mistakes again. And so the trust develops through Training and training and training. What people don't realize is that when we were flying the shuttle, we were flying the shuttle a week every month or two or couple. But but we were training. The control center was alive 40 hours a week usually with training and that you were always in the control center doing training and, and with different team members and different people. So you learn this family of flight controllers and, and who you could trust and who you couldn't. And if there was someone that you couldn't trust, they just disappeared. They were gone. And we, we found another job for them somewhere else in NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that trust carries forward into everything that I do. Now, in aviation, trust is absolutely critical. You have to be able to trust that the mechanic that signed off your airplane actually did the work. You mm-hmm. have to trust that the air traffic controller, when he tells you to turn right immediately for traffic, really means it. And, and, and that's what you're going to do. And so all of that trust is vitally important. And, um, and in the control center, the, the best way you can trust is to admit your mistakes and be honest at all times. Mm-hmm. Paul, the space is risky. It's not easy. Um, in the Apollo program, there were lives lost in Apollo 1 through space shuttle, the loss of the crew in, in Challenger and Columbia. Um, I'm wondering how much of that responsibility – in the in the safety of those lives um weighs upon flight controllers and flight directors and and do you feel that when you're in mission control you you do and that 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 carries through the seriousness with which we do the job um 
we 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 have a good time if it's not fun there's no way you're going to do it but we don't fool around if you will Mm-hmm. And and we spread we we might fool around ordering pizzas. We're not going to fool around when it comes to to, to what the, the, the safety of the crew. Um, I've been in aviation all my life. Before I got to NASA, I knew guys that had gone up in flying machines and had not come back. And, and you never want that to happen, but you know that it's going to. So there's this kind of dichotomy of of uh, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that everybody comes home for dinner. We also know that sooner or later, we're going to have to face the fact that that doesn't happen. And, and, uh, I, I think you've got to, you've got to come with, you've got to come up with a way of dealing with that in your own psyche, um, so that you can live with it or you won't survive in the business very long. Mm -hmm. That was going to be my question is, is there a lot of burnout in, in this career that, I mean, that that's a huge responsibility. There's so much you have to know. Um, I mean, did, did you see a lot of people? leaving because of that we we didn't have a lot of burnout in the sense of that's it i'm done i'm gonna drive a bus there is always a need for really talented demonstrate people to move into uh program management roles project management roles director roles things like that mm-hmm. and and finally paul um NASA is looking for its next class of, of flight controllers and flight directors um what should NASA be looking for in this next generation? And, and what advice do you have uh, for the next route moving forward? Yeah, that's a good question. I just saw the announcement on one of my internal Facebook pages. Like I, I do keep track of what's going on in the control center when I, best I can. And uh, <laughs> they're going to be looking for some new flight directors. They, we have to select a few every year or every couple of years. Um, the best thing you can do to be a flight director, you've got to have energy beyond, beyond balance. You've got to be willing to, to think, eat, sleep, and fly uh, 24 hours a day. Um, and, and, and then you need to have a solid background in space operations. Um, you know, you, you're just not going to hire someone straight off the street. Who's never done anything with the space station before. That's just, they're just not going to qualify. Um, but, but you want to be able to have a fast mind. You want to be able to process things quickly. You've got to be able to learn very complex systems and you have to know how to lead people um, and, and, and make a large team effort happen. So that, that word team, I haven't used a lot in this chat with you, but it's really, really important to recognize that nothing gets done alone. Um, you have to be willing to do everything for the team. And so, so those are just a few of the keys that make a really good flight director. Mm-hmm. Paul Dye retired from NASA in 2013 as the longest serving flight director in U.S. history. His book is Shuttle Houston, My Life in the Center Seat of Mission Control. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Next week, we'll take a look back at the year in space with Fox weather reporter Emily Speck and Florida Today space reporter Emery Kelly, along with our panel of physicists, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. We'll also take a look ahead at the year to come. And I'd like to know what stories you want us to cover on this show in 2022. You can send me an email, yet at wmfe.org, or reach me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan, and the show is at AWTYSpace. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit wmfe.org slash yet. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Have a happy new year.